So we're going to get into the book of Hebrews. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. And uh, I love just uh, being able to continue a series that we've been in for the last few weeks. Um, it's actually been months. Um, we've kind of been in it, been out of it, been back into it. Um, it's the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9, if you're, if you're um, turning there with me. I'm using the ESV version today. Um, if you have your phone and you want to pull that up, that's what I'm using. If you want to follow directly along. Along, along with where I'm going. But we'll be picking up at verse 15 today. And um, before we get into the text, um, I just have a little bit of a confession that I want to make to you um, because I, I think it has everything to do with what we're talking about today, okay? My confession is I have an addiction. I have an addiction, and you might have the same addiction too. It comes when I open up my computer. I type in a website called Amazon.com. <laughs> Who's there with me? Yeah, all right. I love Amazon, okay? But it's bad. It's bad. Don't use it, okay? <laughs> Sorry. The, really, the reason is, is because I can spend hours and hours, and here's where the addiction is, looking at online reviews. I want to get the superior product on Amazon. If I'm looking for a guitar, I want to look at, okay, what are, what are the guitars that have good ratings? What am, what am I going to get that's going to get me the most for the money that I have to spend? Sometimes I'm looking at a camera or a computer or things for our household, things for the church. It doesn't matter. Whatever I'm looking for, usually I'm spending a few hours, it sounds crazy, reading reviews. And um, the point is, I want the best product. I want the best product. And because I'm Dutch, I want the best product for the cheapest price. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, my dad grew up down in uh, West Michigan in Holland, and uh, his parents' parents immigrated right from the Netherlands, and so I'm very, very Dutch, and uh, if, if you've heard, heard some of those Dutch people talk, they'll, they'll say, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, and also one thing that comes with being Dutch is you're also frugal, okay? And so you really don't want to, you don't want, you want to get the best thing and you want to make it last. It's amazing. If my grandma is watching, um, I don't know if she does or not, okay? If my grandma is watching, she still has things in her house that are seriously, her coffee maker looks like it was still from the 50s and it looks like it's immaculate. I'm like, how do you do that? Okay? <laughs> that's, what, that's what you do if you're Dutch, man. You just, you just want to get the most out of everything and waste not, want not, Okay? But here's the deal. When we get to the book of Hebrews today, we have been going through this for, like I said, months, realizing that the author has been making an argument continually about Jesus. And the argument is this, that Jesus is superior. Now, he's been, he's been crafting this argument over a number of chapters, but basically, in relation to what I was talking about, I'm looking for a superior product. Jesus is saying Jesus is a superior Savior. He is the only Savior, the only one that you can have salvation in. And uh, the problem is with Jesus is that uh, you can't even afford him because he's not for sale. You can't buy him. He's a gift. He's a gift. And we're going to see that in today's text, that he offers himself 
as a free gift for us. And uh, if, you, if you've um, been kind of following the, the timeline of uh, where we're at, we are in verse 15 today. And I want to begin with this text by jumping into uh, our discussion in it with the first word. It's the word, therefore. The word, therefore. Okay? Uh, it's Hebrews 9, verse 15. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Let's just stop there a second because we need to understand where this writer is coming from. If you see the word therefore in your Bibles, it means that uh, the writer is making an argument based upon what he just, just said. And so he's, he's coming to a conclusion based upon the mountain of evidence that he's just piled up on the table. And uh, that mountain of evidence is, first of all, chapter 1 and 2, that Jesus is superior to the angels, and he's superior to, to the law. He's superior to the, the, the law of Moses. Um, in chapters 3 and 4, he's, he's superior to Moses himself as the leader of the nation of Israel who gave them the law. And then he's also superior to the promised land. Um, what, what, what the writer of Hebrews lays out is that Jesus, actually, he is our promised land. That um, his kingdom is, is our promised land. Um, he, he lays all that out, okay? And then in, in, uh, in um, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we see that, that Jesus is actually superior to the high priests. And um, he's, he's superior to this king priest named Melchizedek. And then as we get into um, 8, 9, and 10, we see this argument that Jesus is actually better than the temple and the sacrifices that were offered in that temple. This is the, the weight of this argument that carries into this word, therefore. Because the author is, he's talking to Jews that had grown up in the system of religion. They had these, this, this law that they were given that they had to follow and, and sacrifices that they were to offer if they sinned. And he, he's saying, these sacrifices don't get it done. They're not sufficient they're merely a picture. And so, so before we jump into understanding the rest of chapter 9, let me just read a little bit of chapter 9 that we talked about last week, and, um, and, and let's, let's jump into the rest of it with this understanding. The writer has been talking about the temple, and he's talking about the old covenant, this old system of religion. And he's saying this, he, he makes this pretty bold statement that to a Jew that was following the law at that time, he would have been very offended by. He said this, chapter 9, if you back up to, to verse, verse 9, um, uh, it says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices that are offered, are, off, are offered, and they cannot, they cannot perfect the conscience of a worshiper. We talked about that last week. You remember it. Pastor Connor relayed out that, that these sacrifices that were being given in the, in the, in the temple or the tabernacle, they were merely um, just symbolic of, of a greater reality to come, that they could not and would never be able to fully atone for sin. At best, they could just cover it temporarily but, but it says that they cannot, they cannot even perfect the conscience. They, they couldn't not just not perfect the conscience, they couldn't remove your sin from you. So there's a problem. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've got a problem if you still are following along with the ways of the old covenant. 
Now, we're going to skip a little bit to chapter 10 because this kind of fills in the argument, and then, and then we're going to go to 9 verse 15 again, okay? Chapter 10 verse 1 kind of gives this clear picture that it's even worse than what we thought. He says, For since the law had been a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is he saying? He's saying the Old Testament, the old law, what was it? They would have been pretty offended by this. The law is a shadow. How powerful is a shadow? What can a shadow do? You might be afraid of a shadow, I'll tell you, if I, if I use my shadow behind me, it's not a very big shadow. If I kick something with my shadow, you see it? You guys can see it up there, right? Yeah. Okay, if I kick something with my shadow, did it do anything? No, it didn't. But if Isaac was standing up here and I kicked him, it sure hit him, right? Yeah, it would. It would, okay? A shadow is powerless, and that's his point. The old covenant was powerless. It was just a shadow. But what it was revealing is if you look at what caused the shadow, if you look at, at, the, at the, how the, what the shadow was being cast from, that's what the law was pointing to. That's why he calls it a shadow, because who, who was the shadow pointing to? Who was the law pointing to? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. And that's the beauty of what we see all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Anything that God commanded these people to do, is given with this understanding that there is someone greater that is coming that is going to do this fully and perfectly. You know, it was, it was Paul who said that, that uh, the, the law only revealed to me my sin, right? And that's all it did. It was powerful to reveal your sin and your need for a Savior. And we're just going to see that today in Jesus Christ. So, let's jump back into chapter 9. Chapter 9, we're ready to go. Um, verse 15 Having said, therefore, he's come up with this argument, you got to trust in Jesus, but here's who Jesus is. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So you got these Old Testament Jews They've been walking along, they've been following the, the old covenant, they've been going to the temple at least, at least every year on the Day of Atonement to uh, have, have their sin atoned for, their unintentional sins, and, and then sometimes daily they would, they would go and make atonement for sins that they intentionally committed. And, and they're being told that this, this is not good enough, this is not sufficient, this, this, uh, this way of, of coming to God is not going to get you there, it's actually, there's actually still a barrier what we're being told now is that there is someone else that is a mediator of a new covenant, and his name is Jesus. And he uses these words here, eternal inheritance, right? Eternal inheritance. I love those words. What's an inheritance? If we think about it in our terms today, an inheritance is something that you and I would receive from a relative, probably, most likely our, our parents, when they die. But in order to receive it, um, most likely you would have had to have been um, 
one of their children, or maybe you were adopted into, into their family, and so they wrote you into their will. That's the concept that the writer of Hebrews is going to explain the new covenant with. He's going to use the word covenant, and he's going he's to make it clear that this covenant is just like a last will and testament. And we're going to see that in verse 16, so let's keep on going. Verse 16, it says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now, you may be like, what? Like, where are we going with all this this morning? He's going to use this concept that was probably pretty foreign to them and explain it in ways that you and I can understand it and that they could understand it. And so he takes this word covenant and he says, it's just like, it's just like a will. Um, just like when someone writes out their will. Now, I want to ask you a question. This is an important question. Who's written out their will? Who's written out their will yet? Feel free to raise your hand. I'm going to take a tally here. I think we have like, ooh, this is not that great. But <laughs> Seriously, who wrote their will? Who's written their will? Yeah? Okay, maybe 70% of us. Okay, let me tell you something. If you're an adult and you haven't written out your will yet, do at least, if you're a young adult, do at least your parents a favor and get it done, okay? Um, but especially if you have children and you haven't written out your will, find a lawyer, go online, do whatever it takes, and, and seriously, write out your will because uh, you're going to at least um, keep your assets from going to the government, okay? And I think we'd like that if we died. Um, we'd actually like our assets to go to our family. Um, that's the reason why we write a will. We want to make sure that when we die, our wishes will be cared for. And so I can remember when uh, my wife and I um, sat down with a lawyer who was from our church in West Virginia, and we sat down in his, his office there, and he asked us all these questions about what, you know, what we wanted to happen after we died and, and who we'd like for things to go to. And basically what we said is that whatever we have, um, we want it to be equally distributed amongst our children. And uh, we thought that that would probably be the fairest thing. But then, um, then it came to the question of, well, if they are, um, there has to be an executor for a will as well. And so we made that our um, precious sister, Aunt Peace. And uh, she is actually the one that if we would die, if both of us would die today, you also know it right now, our kids would go to Wisconsin to be living with Aunt Peace. Um, that's our will. It was basic things that we had to communicate about to make sure that if we die, that things were in order. It also would deal with our assets to make sure that, that things are distributed fairly. And uh, so, like I said, if you haven't gotten that done, it's something you should do, seriously. Um, if there's any takeaway, go do it this week, okay? Um, practical advice. But we're in verse 16, and he's, he's explaining this new covenant with, with a will. Now, let me ask you a question just like a lot of us have a will, does God have a will? This verse would seem to say so, right? I would say, yes, God does have a will. I'd say before the beginning of time, since God is, God is outside of time, he sees all time on a spectrum. He knows the beginning from the end. There's nothing that's outside of, outside of him. You think that when God created this world and he created Adam and Eve, that he didn't know that they were gonna sin and fall? You think that he had a plan before that? You think that that took God off guard? No, I, don't say, I wouldn't say so. No, God had a plan before the beginning of time that he would glorify himself 
by redeeming a mankind who couldn't measure up to his standards. And that's why he, he put in his plan. You'll see it in Genesis chapter 3, that, uh, that proto-evangelon, where it says that he will crush his head and you shall, crush it, you shall bite his heel or something like that. Genesis chapter 3. You'll see that being said to the serpent. Ultimately, there's a Savior that's going to come and he's going to rescue mankind. And he's, he's going to bring, bring them back into relationship with me so that they can have an eternal inheritance. But God had a plan. That's the point. God had a plan before the beginning of time that he would send his son Jesus to save us from our sins. And so when there is a will, basically what, what God's will is that we might receive an eternal inheritance. And he set that forth in Christ. So if we keep on reading, if we think practically about a will, what has to happen in order for a will to be enacted? What has to happen? Verse 16 and 17 laid out. It says that there needs to be a death. We already read verse 16, so let's read verse 17. It says, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force. Um, here we go. Um, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So, for those of you that have a will and you have children, um, I guarantee you, your children are not coming to you asking you to sign over your will to them at this point. They, you know, you can't do it. Your will only comes into effect after you die. You cannot enact your will yourself, okay? It comes after you're gone. And uh, it's the same with God's will. Because if you think about it, if God willed for us to receive an eternal inheritance, there had to have been a death that took place in order for his will to be enacted. Now, first of all, what we need to realize is that because of our sin, um, we deserve death. We deserve punishment and separation from a holy God who is just. But Jesus' death not only saved us from our sin, not only covered over our sin, cleansed us from our sin, but it enacted God's perfect will upon us. Isn't that crazy? That's pretty cool. Jesus' death on the cross was what put God's plan in motion for us to receive his eternal inheritance. But it doesn't stop there, okay? Let's understand what this death, this death was, though. Verse 18 says, talking about death, it goes back to the Old Covenant and makes a comparison about the blood that was shed back in the Old Testament. It says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the, the first covenant didn't begin without blood. We talked about Abraham and the splitting of those animals in two and how that, that began that, that first covenant. Okay? It says in verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled both the book itself and the people. Think about this. Think about us all sitting here right now and me taking, uh, you know, the, the drippings from all the blood of bulls and goats and, and me flinging it out over all of you guys today. That's what happened. Pretty disgusting, okay? You were covered with blood. That's what happened, okay? Moses did it. So, so it started that way. Um, 
and the, the book and all the people, verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. So he's talking about the tabernacle and all those, all those elements within the tabernacle that were, were used to, to go before God. Verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know what the shedding of blood was God's perfect way to forgive sins? But the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, as we said, was just a shadow of what was to come, and that was Jesus. It couldn't take away sin. But Jesus, in his sacrifice, did. Not only did he, he enact God's last will and testament, but he covered our sin in the, same, in the same way. So a question comes up then, as we understand further of this text, is with every last will and testament, you name someone that's going to be the executor of it. And that executor can't be you. If, it's, if, if you have written out a will and you die, you're not going to be the one that makes sure it happens. And so there, there's named an executor. For us, it was our aunt. It's our aunt peace, right? I don't know who it is for you, but in this case, who is it? Let's go back to verse 15. It says, he is the mediator of a new covenant. What does he mean by that? that not only did God will for this to happen, Jesus enacts it by his death, and then he executed it. <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong. He's the executor of it. How? By rising again from the dead. So far, all of this has been dependent on God himself. He's the one who wills it, he's the one who enacts it, and he's the one who executes it. How do I know that? Not only says he's the mediator of this new covenant, but we know from, from other scriptures in the book of Hebrews that he is our great high priest who sits at the right hand of God and he intercedes to God on our behalf. He is making sure that, that when you approach the throne of God, that throne of justice, that you'll receive mercy and you'll find grace to help you in your time of need. He's the one that makes sure that his will is executed upon. That is the beauty of Christ. He is the one that is sufficient. It doesn't stop there, though, okay? So it's, it's from him, it's through him, okay? But then the other question I think we need to understand in this text that, that I don't know if we get exactly right here, I think we get hints of it, is the question for all of us is, who's the heirs? Who's the heirs of God's last will and testament? Who's going to receive it? Well, just like any other last will and testament, usually it's the children, that receive it, right? And so to, to understand it, let me, let me just point you toward a scripture, and I, I want you to maybe study it on your own, um, because this was really influential in my own life, in understanding my salvation, and understanding how I was, was secure in Jesus once I put my faith in him. Hey, Romans chapter 8, probably familiar with some of these words, Romans chapter 8, and I, I, I began in verse 14, I want to read it for you, because it answers that question for us, is who are the heirs of this last will and testament, this new covenant that he has made with us? 
Chapter 8, verse 14 of Romans says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Don't, don't, just, don't just gloss over this. These are beautiful truths. It says that, that when we're saved, we're given the spirit. The, the spirit of what? Adoption. See, you and I, we're not just not just, you know, born into this family. No, we're, we're pretty much estranged from God. And then we're reborn. It says, you know, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Okay, and what, what he's talking about is, is not, not a literal birth, but a spiritual birth that takes place. And the other way to understand it is in, here in Romans is that we're literally adopted, legally adopted into the family of God. And so you and I, we can call ourselves brothers and sisters if we've placed our faith in Christ. And, 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 and to Jesus Christ, uh, he is our brother and God is our father, right? Keep on going because it explains it a little bit more. We cry to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. Verse, verse uh, 16, the Spirit himself, he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And here's the beautiful thing that goes along with Hebrews. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Wow, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, okay? So we are heirs. We are heirs of God and get this, fellow heirs with Christ. If you're going back to the book of Hebrews, let me just help you understand this. God wills it. Jesus enacts it by his death he rises to execute it, and then he becomes the first heir of it. And so it is from him, it is through him, and it is for him. Wow! That's God's will. That's Romans eleven thirty six too. From him, through him, for him are all things. It's not about you, but man in his perfect will... He chose to glorify himself in saving you and calling you in heir with him, provided that you put your faith and your trust in him alone for salvation, because he's the only way. That's what he calls you. And so he initiated it, he enacts it, he executed it, he's an heir of it along with us. We're co-heirs with Christ of this eternal inheritance that we see in chapter 15. But man, as we, as we get to the end of this passage, one thing that I, I believe that we need to really get serious about, and maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, man, this is all cool, and like, this is kind of blowing my mind, but I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm worthy of it. Let me just put those fears to rest in you. And if, if maybe you're feeling like, man, I just, I just don't feel worthy, um, and, and you do trust in Christ, let me, let me give you some assurance and encouragement as we close out this text, okay? It comes in the next few verses. Keep on reading. Verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Again, the writer's kind of making this comparison back to Old Covenant, New Covenant, earth, heaven, temple, and then the, the, the dwelling place of God, the throne room of God. He's saying just like the temple, like we just read about Moses, you know, putting the blood on everybody and on the temple and all the articles, just like that had to be purified with blood, so it is with the heavenly things. Did he mean that heaven itself was somehow impure and it had to be purified somehow? Is that what he meant? No, no, that's not what he meant. It meant that just as Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, so we need to also be purified with the blood of Christ. And that's, that's the beautiful thing, is that, that Jesus has done that work for you, on your behalf. You gotta receive it. You gotta enjoy, receive his finished work on the cross, and his blood is the one that purifies us from all sin. That's what we know from Scripture. Keep on going, though. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, they're shadows, remember that, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Your translation, you might say, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so, so while everything is from God, through God, for God, what is he also? He is also for his glory, for us. He, Christ appeared in the presence of God at the judgment seat of God to plead our case and to take our judgment upon himself. And so if you're here and you're like, man, I don't feel worthy of it, the fact is you're not worthy of it. And coming to that realization of you're not worthy of it and receiving Jesus as a free gift I mean, you can't, you can't demand to be an heir. Uh, you know, uh, a last will and testament is, is something that, that you, don't, you don't merit other than that you become a child. You're part of the family. So become part of the family. You can become an heir. You're not worthy of it. That's the whole point. You're not worthy of it, and Jesus gives it to you freely as a gift. Like we said, you can't afford him. You can't. You can't pay for him. Jesus offers himself. So he appears in the presence of God for us. And, and as we move into the end of, end of our service, and we're, we're going to even celebrate communion. Here's, here's how I want us to understand our celebration of communion this time. It says, now, in verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the, as, as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with the blood that's not his own. For then... He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Stop there. Let's understand what he's saying. He's saying, Christ did not, like a high priest, enter into the holy places year after year to make sacrifices. No, he didn't offer himself repeatedly. What he did, he did once, and he did it for all. And that's what this next verse states. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What Jesus did, he did once for all. No need for it to be repeated. And that's the argument that the writer of Hebrews offered. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in his sufficient sacrifice for sin. 
You know, there, there's a pretty troubling doctrine that, that goes around in some churches, one church specifically in, in the Catholic Church. It, it practices um, mass, what they call as mass, and maybe you've been a part of this. But their goal in practicing mass is that they, they take the cup, just like we're going to take, and they'll take the bread, and um, their, their goal is not to remember, but to repeat. You find anything troubling with that? To repeat the sacrifice of Jesus? They believe in, in that, that this cup is actually the blood of Jesus, and the bread is actually his body, and that by us taking it, we're offering it again on behalf of ourselves for sin. D- does that sound crazy to you? It is crazy. And it's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has been offered once for all, for all mankind. And we trust in his sufficient sacrifice for the Old Testament saints that offered sacrifices and looked to a perfect sacrifice. And for us today, 2,000 years after Christ's sacrifice has been done, we look to his once for all sacrifice for sin, sufficient for salvation sufficient to bring us to God. That's what we celebrate today. It doesn't need to be repeated. It needs to be remembered. And as we end our service, that's what we want to do. We want to remember, we want to rejoice in his work. Let me close out verse 27. 27 gives us, and 27, 28 kind of just gives us um, a direction forward from here. Where do we go from here? What do we do with what we've received. It says, just as appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, eagerly waiting for him. As these verses closed, this portion, this chapter, this flow of thought, what he's saying is that in the end, just as it is appointed for us to die and then face the judgment, he's saying this is a reality, this is what each of you are going to have to go through. Put your faith in the one who bore that judgment on your behalf, who did it once for all. His name is Jesus. And, and, and don't, don't stay in that place, but live with that reality in mind as you go about each day. And this is, this is something for each of us as we walk out these doors, even though there's like the beginning of winter right now in Traverse City, um, we can live with his second coming in mind. We've got an election coming up, right? Tuesday is the election. Man, you don't need to be fearful. We know who is the king. We're going to a kingdom, aren't we? Now, that doesn't mean you need to go vote. Go vote. That's the part of responsibility as a, as a citizen of this nation. But man, we serve a king and a kingdom that is greater than all. And we don't have to fear. We, we don't, we don't have, to, have to get all scared about what this future is going to hold. Jesus has got this. And he's sufficient in his sacrifice for us. Why don't we pray? Let's ask God to just uh, move us into this time of remembering his sacrifice through communion. Thank you, God, that you sent your son Jesus, the salvation of the world, for our sins. Thank you, God, that we take no credit 
for any of this. But God, that is from you, it's through you, it's for you. God, we desire to bring you glory in the way that we respond to this. And so, Lord, I, I pray, God, that, that as we're sitting here, as we prepare for this time of communion, that first of all, if there's someone here that, that maybe is hearing this message for the first time, has understood what it fully means to be saved, God, that they'd reach out to you and say, Lord Jesus, would you save me? I believe in your once-for-all sacrifice for my sins. And I put my faith in his finished work on the cross. I believe, Jesus, that you are at the right hand of the throne of God interceding on my behalf and that you bore my judgment. I confess my sins to you. I turn around, I repent of them, and I want to be your child. If you're here today and you need to pray that prayer, putting your faith in Jesus, I want you to do it right now. For all of us that are here in this place, as we get ready to take the cup and, and the bread, celebrate this, God, we pray that uh, you just prepare our hearts for that. God, that um, we'd remember the joy of our salvation in you, your sufficiency over all. We give you our lives, we give you our church, we give you our work, everything, God. We lay it, lay it on the altar, and we ask that you would control it, move it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.